Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Gravity had a good run, but it's time to feel the weightlessness of the Brooks Glycerin 21. These running shoes feature nitrogen-infused DNA Loft V3 cushioning. Brooks has even magnified the plushness to elevate the softness to new levels. And if you want extra support, find these same features in the Brooks Glycerin GTS 21. Learn more and shop now at brooksrunning.com. That's brooksrunning.com. Welcome to the Politics Guys interview. Conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture with authors and researchers from across the ideological spectrum. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is author, speaker, and practicing barrister Jamie Suskin. Jamie studied history and politics at Magdalen College, Oxford, before turning to law and is a past fellow of Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. His recently released book is Future Politics, Living Together in a World Transformed by Tech, which we'll be talking about today. Jimmy Suskin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I thought we'd start with a question I, I'm always fascinated by. So what prompted you to write Future Politics? I mean, it was no small undertaking. This is a, this is a very comprehensive, uh, in-depth book, and, and so no small, no small thing. And so <laughs> what, what's behind it? Well, I think the seeds were planted when I was an undergraduate and studying political philosophy at Oxford, which I loved. But I was surprised by the fact that so much of political theory was written as if the world would be the same in 2050 as it was in 1950. And even then, it surprised. And this was back, you know, 10 years ago. It surprised me that a whole politics degree could be completed at one of the most prestigious universities in the world without reference to the internet. And 10 years on those problems or those omissions are even more unacceptable. And there are so few people genuinely working at the intersection of, on the one hand, technology, and on the other hand, the political and social sciences, that I thought it would be a fertile area for exploration, and indeed, an urgent one. I worked in politics before I became a lawyer. And again, it was clear to me that tech was transforming the, the world in ways that were profound and rapid in equal measure. And I was sure that if I spent some time thinking hard about the future of politics and technology's effect on it, and using political theory and jurisprudence from the past to see at what use it could be, then I might be able to come up with something fruitful. Yeah, and I think you definitely, at least my opinion, you definitely succeeded in, in that. And Thank you. It, so it, the book, you break the book down into several parts, and in part one, is your summary of, of what you call the, the digital life world where we're at now. And uh, you argue that that's characterized by increasingly capable systems, increasingly integrated technology, and an increasingly quantified society. And I'm hoping maybe we could start by you talking a little bit about the, what those things are and how they connect together. Absolutely. So this is the part of the book where I try to set out the empirical basis for my ideas, what's actually happening in the world and what can we expect to happen based on current trends. Of course, there's no evidence from the future, so 
you can never be sure about any of this stuff. In fact, the only thing you can be sure about is that some of it will be wrong. But based on where we currently are, there seem to me to be three big things going on, as you say. One is increasingly capable systems, non-human computational systems that are capable of performing tasks, which we would never have previously thought possible, and doing them as well as us or better than us. And as is well known, AI systems can now beat humans at almost every game that we've ever devised, from chess to the exponentially more complex game of Go. They can diagnose lung cancers and skin cancers better than the best human experts. They can lip read and mimic as well as the best human experts, mimic human speech, that is. They can tell the difference between a fake smile and a real smile better than we can, and can read a human being's face for its emotions better than we can as well, whether they're depressed or happy or angry. And my general uh, projection is that the pace of um, improvement of these systems is not slowing down. In fact, it's speeding up, uh, partly due to an exponential growth in computer processing power, which has been going for more than half a century now. And I expect in the future we'll be living alongside non-human machines of really quite extraordinary capacity. And that's the first one. It's said, for instance, that by 2020, uh, the average desktop-sized machine will contain the same amount of processing power as all of humanity combined. That's a pretty profound change from the world that we lived in or our parents lived in. The second is increasingly integrated technology. Now, this is the idea that whereas in the past, the computer was initially something the size of a room, and for most of our lifetimes has been accessed through the keyboard and mouse and the, the desktop screen. And since, say, 2008, 2009, has principally been accessed technology through uh, what's been called the glass slab of the iPad or the iPhone or, or, or whatever um, alternative system you use. In the future, technology won't look like technology as we currently understand it. So processing power and capabilities of the kind that I described, together with sensors and connections to the Internet, will be distributed into the world around us in our objects and appliances and utilities and our architecture and in the public and private spaces in which we live so that technology will, as it were, surround us. It will be integrated into our lives in a way that it never has been before. And the distinction between real and uh, virtual, online and offline, cyberspace and meat space will become less and less important, less and less meaningful, as well as increasingly difficult to discern. And the third major pattern that I identify, as you say, is the increasingly quantified society. We produce more data every two hours, it's said, than we did from the dawn of civilization until 2003. And by 2020, there are predicted to be three million books worth of information for every human being on the planet. And what this means is that we now live in a world, and we're moving into one, where Increasingly, every act and utterance, every sentiment and movement is captured and recorded as data by the technologies around us and stored in permanent and semi-permanent form. That's very different from our forebears who, whatever else they knew, knew that most of their lives would be immediately forgotten to history as soon as they took place. And so I try to assess the political consequences of those three changes. And that's essentially the work of part two in the book, and which, is, which revolves around the four basic political concepts, uh, the future of them at least, power, liberty, democracy, and social justice. And I thought maybe we could take a look at each of those, starting 
starting with power and, and, you know, power is one of those concepts that's so broad. I, I almost hate to ask the question, what is power or how do you conceive of it? Because you could, people have written entire books, uh, could teach entire semesters of classes about that. But I think it's a, it's a vitally important question to ask and, and, and definition to understand. So I was hoping we could start there. What do you mean by power? Well, obviously, it's a contested concept and different people say different things about it. But I don't think that's a reason for us to be paralyzed. I start with Robert Dahl's intuitive definition of power, where A has power over B to the extent that A gets B to do something B wouldn't otherwise do, or um, not to do something B would otherwise have done. And that an entity is powerful, I say, if it can do that, if it can change B's behavior on a consistent basis over time, in a stable way, and in relation to matters of significance in B's life. So in the digital life world, uh, you, you say that code is power and that in the future, uh, we could actually have a number of laws that are self-enforcing and adaptive. And that's a very different type of future. And those, I guess those laws would, that, that, would, that would happen through code. Could you walk us through a little bit about how that might happen? Absolutely. I mean, imagine that you're traveling in a self-driving car and you ask that car to go over the speed limit and it refuses, or you ask it to park in an illegal space for a couple of minutes and it refuses. There you have an instance where the law of the land has been coded into a device and we, the users of that device, are unable to uh, break the law. Similarly, you won't be able to dodge a bus fare if it's automatically deducted from your smart wallet when you step on the bus, or you won't be able to stream an episode of Game of Thrones illegally if the digital rights management technology uh, reflecting copyright law prevents you from doing so. And so Larry Lessig, the Harvard scholar, draws the distinction between a door which says do not enter and a locked door. We currently live in a world characterized by doors saying do not enter. We can enter, we can drive over the speed limit, subject to some potential future sanction. But in the future, as more and more of our freedoms are exercised through technologies, the freedom to speak, the freedom to move, and the like, um, then the rules contained in those technologies may well enforce the law of the land. And I'd be surprised if they didn't. I mean, if you go to the Temple of Heaven Park in Beijing today and ask, in the public utilities there to use some toilet paper. Your distribution of toilet paper there is already regulated by face recognition technology. They had a problem apparently with people taking more than their fair share. The point is, technologies offer a system of enforcement which is incredibly complete and incredibly potent. But the point I'd make, um, Michael, is that a lot of the rules contained in technology aren't the laws of the land. They're just additional rules that the manufacturer or the designer has coded into them. And so increasingly, we'll be taking rules not just from legislators, not just from legal codes, but from private code as well. And, and that's sort of a, I mean, when I read that, that was sort of a scary thing to me because I, I thought of, well, there were two things that came to mind almost immediately to me. And the first is, well, 
What happens if there's a situation where I absolutely need to break the law to, you know, to, to, to double park or do something like that to, I don't know, in an emergency situation, will I not be able to do that? And then sort of related to that secondarily, it's like, well, what do I know about this coder? And as you talk about systems that maybe uh, adapt and machine learning and so forth, we could have a situation where really no one understands this code that is sort of ruling our lives. And boy, that, that scared the heck out of me, I got to say. <laughs> well, let's, uh, I mean, it, it is scary at its most extreme. Let's break it down. The, the car may well allow you to drive over the speed limit. Perhaps there'll be a button which you can press in an emergency, which allows you to do it. And indeed, the car may have a variable speed limit coded into it, depending on the weather conditions and the traffic conditions, so that sometimes you're restricted to 40 and sometimes to 60. The point isn't necessarily that it will be one way or the other, but rather that the law will increasingly be enforced by the locked door that is code. And I think that's a pretty significant change in human affairs from anything that we've been used to in the past. Then you make the very important point about the people who write the code, as it were, the mini legislators. And really the whole book that is about the consequences of choices that those guys make. And I'm afraid 90% of them in Silicon Valley are guys. The people who write the code and design the products that we use have an extraordinary amount of influence over our lives. Their choices do affect our freedom, our democracy, and questions of social justice. And so I have this phrase, the digital is political. They can no longer be treated as technical or corporate questions, but rather as matters of moral and political interest, um, which is partly why I say technologists need a greater training in the liberal arts and the philosophies that have come before them. But I think you're right that in time, questions of answerability and transparency will emerge. You know, right back to the Greeks, humans have always struggled to assert some kind of control over those who seek to control them, or those who at least are capable of controlling them, whether it was kings and conquerors in the past, parliaments today, and I say code in addition in the future. And the natural corollary of that is going to be that tech firms in the future ought not, as a matter of political theory, to be able to wield enormous power in society without some degree of oversight or, at the very least, transparency. Yeah. Now, the broader point, <clears throat> the even deeper point, is that increasingly the code that is at play in the world is itself code generated by machines, machine learning systems, whose algorithms change over time based on the data that they're fed. And you are right that they, they can be very inscrutable even to their human creators. And so we do risk sliding into a world where important decisions are made, perhaps a distributive decision about who gets a job or who gets a mortgage or insurance on the basis of algorithms whose content is fundamentally obscure, not just to us, the end user or the end effectee, but to their, to their human creators who are supposed to be the experts. And that, I agree, is quite an imposing prospect. Yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, also, and I, I hate to be so, I guess, uh, pessimistic, but when you talk and you talk a lot in the book about the future of uh, uh, power as scrutiny, and, and that to me is a, is a really sort of daunting thing. And, and, you know, even today, we're under so much more scrutiny from uh, CCTV and other things like that, you know, much more than even a generation or so ago. And I can't see, I can't envision a future where that's not going to increase. And so what could you talk a little bit about some of the political implications of a, of a society in which essentially 
our every move is uh, potentially scrutinized and, and, and quantified and, and available for, for uh, you know, analysis by either the state or these tech firms. Yes, I mean, we tend to perceive of scrutiny uh, as visual, you know, being watched, whether by other humans or in recent history by CCTV. But really, the scrutiny that faces us in the future is of a far more profound kind. It is the silent gathering of data about us every time we interact with a technology, whether we know it or not. And sometimes even when we don't interact with technologies, when we just happen to be near them. And as I say in the book, this has implications for power in two ways. The first is that the more that someone knows about you, the easier it is to influence or even manipulate you. They know the carrots that you respond to and they know the sticks. And that's the basis of almost all online advertising. You gather information about folks and then you present your wares to them in the way that the algorithm and the data tell you that person, that individual, will find most attractive and most persuasive. And of course, it's increasingly the basis for political advertising too. It's said that Donald Trump's uh, political consultants, Cambridge Analytica, had 5,000 data points for up to 200 million Americans in the last election, which allowed them to micro-target political messages, not just to individual constituencies or districts or even households, but at individual people, so that the messaging you received might be different from the one that the person you share a bed with receives or the person you share a house with receives. It's a highly granular act of persuasion, which can be both enlightening, but they can also be manipulative. So the more that's known about us, the easier it is for us to become the playthings of those who would like to sell us things, whether it's products or politicians. But also scrutiny, I think, is going to have a disciplinary effect on us. It would seem strange to me if we didn't change our behavior in some way over the next generation, mindful of the fact that the things that we do that are sinful or shameful or wrong or perceived as such by society are likely to be detected and could lead to some kind of punishment or at the very least stigma or shame. And the same consequence will be uh, resulting from systems that increasingly rate us and score us, of which the Ubers and Airbnbs are the beginning of the exercise and the Chinese exercise on social credit, which we can talk about more if you like, is perhaps the natural logical conclusion. So I think in a whole variety of ways, there will be ways for others to influence us, to exert power over us, but also technology will cause us to exert power over ourselves in ways that I think are still quite unpredictable, but are likely to be significant. Well, you know, to me, that's the, the sort of the most uh, concerning uh, aspect of power. You talk about power as perception control, and we're seeing already so much of that you know, today when I signed up for, for Apple News, for instance, I was told we're going to give you, you know, the news tailored to what you want more and more. And the more you click, the more customized it becomes. And to me, that doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like a straitjacket that's going to kind of force me even more into my own bubble. And that sounds like a really bad idea from for, for a whole society. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, the we all depend on technologies to present a slice of reality to us beyond our immediate perception. You know, we're all limited by our senses and we rely increasingly on technologies to tell us what's going on out there. Every time we use a search function or a news function, that's what we're doing. 
And the slice of reality that we're presented with is extremely important. Because if you don't know about a particular political issue, you're unlikely to care about it. And if you're told that a particular point of view is right or wrong, then over time you're likely to share that view more trenchantly than you did before. In the 90s, it was said that we would all customize our news flows consciously, you know, with the creation of the so-called daily me. But nowadays, as you correctly identify, it's done for us by algorithms which perceive, based on our online activity, what we might be interested in and present us with a slice of reality that is likely to maximize our attention uh, to that slice and to that source of information. And that, as you say, can lead to multiple different information environments overlapping. And, you know, to me, it seems like there's this fundamental distinction we need to make between uh, between ourselves as consumers and ourselves as citizens. And so much of this this perceptual perceptual uh, kind of manipulation is geared toward our role as consumers. And I, I would argue that what's good for us as consumers isn't necessarily good for us as citizens in a democracy. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, what we want to hear isn't always what we need, what we need to hear. Yeah, exactly. I, I'd like to turn to liberty because to me, that's a really interesting concept in, in the digital life world, because in some ways, there's no question that it's going to be a huge advantage in terms of greater freedom of movement and experience to people. But that, that, on the other hand, though, I, I wonder if we can actually handle as much liberty as we might be seeing that, you know, we see this as a good thing, but all these choices that we'll have will, I would wonder, overwhelm us maybe, and that we're going to end up basically uh, incredibly shallow and just giving away our, uh, our choices to, to these automated systems because we just can't handle everything that's being thrown at us. I mean, do you think that's a, a reasonable concern for me to have? Maybe. I mean, Eric Fromm in the last century said that human beings yearn for unfreedom sometimes as much mm-hmm. as we yearn for freedom because freedom can be unbearable and uncertain and unfreedom can be comfortable and warm and cozy. And to a certain extent, that's what I see playing out. I mean, I actually think we might not feel less free in the future. And in fact, the number of things that we are able to do is likely to increase because technology allows us to do things we couldn't previously do and make some things easier, which were in the past harder. But at the same time, the limits of our freedom will be, as we discussed earlier, increasingly set by tech firms and the like, and governments using the extraordinary powers of technology to control and to guide our action. And I'm not convinced that we will have an abundance of choices in the future, because I think it's very difficult in the current information environment to customize the technologies that we interact with, whether there are social media platforms, our news sources, our vehicles and machinery. We don't yet live in a world where a premium is placed on the ability of all of us to define the good life for ourselves and then realize it through our technologies. We're instead shaped by our technologies and the visions of those who create them. You know, I also want to turn to democracy is one of the third the third main concept you discuss and you know you make the point that that has been made well, probably most famously by Winston Churchill but you know the the best system of governance we've had compared at least compared to all the others or sorry the worst compared to all the, but and you make the point that uh uh it's best at least the best we come up with because of what you call its uh epistemic superiority meaning that it generates better outcomes at least you know in the long run 
more so than any other system. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about why that is and why that might be changing in the future. Well, in defense of democracy, what is said by those who claim it has epistemic superiority usually falls into one of two categories. One is the counters, as they've been called, who say that by and large, crowds of people, diverse crowds of people, reach better decisions than small groups of experts do. And there's a famous anecdote about uh, the French village guessing the weight of the ox, and even the greatest ox weighing <laughs> experts were beaten by the average result of what the villagers guessed. That's one way of looking at democracy. The other way is through deliberation, which is that through the deliberative process of democracy, where we debate matters openly and rationally, we root out good and bad arguments, good and bad, good and bad policies, and can that way reach the best possible policy outcomes much better than, say, a totalitarian system or a system of decision making by one, however wise, individual. Now, I, I don't necessarily see either of those arguments losing their value, but it's certainly the case that we are developing new ways of processing information which did not exist when those arguments and those systems of government were generated. So, for instance, you know, a government which truly represented the people might, you might say, take into account the big data that actually exists about our lived world experiences, and it might track who we are, where we go, uh, what we buy, who we interact with better as a matter of epistemic judgment than a tick in a box on a ballot paper once every four years, which is how we currently constitute our governments. So it's likely to me that in the future, democracy as we currently practice it, its claim to epistemic superiority is likely to be subject to questions as to whether technology cannot also help us to make wise and informed empirical decisions. Right. And, and you also talk a lot about deliberative democracy, which, which you brought up there. Um, and, and in the book, you write that deliberative democracy needs a forum for civil discussion, not a marketplace of screaming merchants. And, and of course, I mean, a marketplace of screaming merchants seems like exactly what we have now. And uh, I'm wondering if you see that as just being increasingly more and more of the future. I mean, is, is deliberative, is essentially technology destroying the prospects for deliberative democracy? Well, look, the, the point can be pressed too far because we've never had ideal deliberation, you know, where everyone calmly and rationally, according to set rules, participates on an equal basis. Political discourse has always been raucous and it has always been tumultuous, although sometimes it's been done better than others. The truth is that our current state of discourse is not in a great way. It's fragmented, it's polarized, it proceeds on the basis of factual assumptions, which oftentimes turn out not to be true at all. And it's hard not to conclude that this is partly, if not mainly, the result of technology. And what I say in the book is quite simple, which is that tech firms who increasingly provide us with the platforms on which almost all important political debate takes place. They create those platforms according to the logic of the market. They're trying to maximize the amount of users, maximize the amount of clicks and shares and follows, and maximize the amount of attention grabbed. And that's fine, I guess, if, if you're measuring it against capitalist principles. 
But if we say that actually what these firms are doing is moderating society's debate, controlling democratic deliberation, then the logic should not just be about maximizing clicks and shares and follows, but also about improving the quality of debate. And there isn't always a good commercial reason to improve the quality of debate. In fact, the opposite. Sensationalism and partisanship are often what sells. And so what you have is the logic of the market infecting the logic of democracy and, yes, creating a circumstance where deliberation, which was conceived of as being about the public good, becomes essentially a consumer matter where we all approach it as, as like we were choosing a gym or buying a particular product in the supermarket. And my own argument is that for this to be sustainable, tech firms, and I think they are increasingly realizing this, are going to have to treat their forums, their platforms, as what they are, which is fundamental institutions of democracy, not just as private instruments for the maximization of profit. And, and, and in that sense, then, they would, they would almost be seen as uh, a public utilities, if you will, which would suggest a level of uh, uh, regulation or, or you know, government imposing a number of restrictions on them because of how fundamentally important they are. And so Facebook or Google or what have you wouldn't be able to do just whatever they wanted. They'd have to they'd have to, you know, meet certain meet certain requirements. And so forth. is that is that kind well, of what I, you I, I... I agree with you on, on their fundamental importance, which is why I would even challenge the, the, the equation with public utilities. That is to say, you know, the electricity company and the water company and the like, these are important, but they've never interfered with the democratic process. They've never determined our freedom or otherwise. They've certainly never exerted power over us by getting us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do. So yes, my premise is that these are not ordinary commercial entities. That, that that's absolutely the case. And yes, I think we have to find some way of making sure that they behave as such. Now, one way is regulation. And uh, I think we will see it in the coming years. I think we also should be skeptical of it because a lot, what a lot of regulation does is simply shift the power of technology from private firms to the state. And your American listeners will have no problem accepting the argument that state itself can sometimes be an overweening Absolutely. source of power. So I, I think we need to be cautious about that. And, you know, when people talk about regulation and nationalization, I think it's naive because I think that <laughs> we're always at risk of going the full China and mm -hmm. see the full benefits of technology accruing to the state in its exercise of power over the citizenry. But yes, I fundamentally do agree that one way or another, tech firms are going to have to behave differently. And, and one, well, one of the problems with sort of a second option that people who don't like regulation sometimes suggest with this is is uh, breaking them up, antitrust law, that sort of thing. But it's and, and you talk about that uh, you know a bit in the book. But it, but it seems to me one of the fundamental problems with this is that it has to do with network effects. In other words, uh, breaking up a Facebook makes a whole bunch of less valuable, less useful many Facebooks potentially because part of its great value is that it is so big essentially and that that presents some unique problems I would think. Sure I mean the reason you and I use Facebook is not because Facebook is amazing and brilliant in every respect it's because two billion other people yeah, use Facebook right. and if you and I designed a social media platform tomorrow that was superior in functionality and design to Facebook in every way 
it would still be commercially almost useless because it's only you and I who are members of it. And so you're quite right that the reason a lot of tech platforms are valuable is because they are on a network or they, they, they benefit from the network effect, whereby the value of the, the overall good increases, as it were, exponentially in relation to the number of extra users who take part in it. I mean, I, I, I think that we will have to have what I call structural regulation of some kind, which revolves around making sure that no one firm becomes too powerful. But I do, for other reasons, think that existing antitrust regimes are probably inadequate to the task. That's because what they are introduced to regulate and have been for, for, for a long time is abuses of economic power. So it's normally things like um, unfair pricing practices. But our complaint about tech firms isn't that they're exploiting us economically, or at least I don't think that should be our principal complaint, because actually we get a lot of free stuff from Google and from Facebook and the like. And yes, we exchange data, but in, in purely economic terms, our data is worth almost nothing. What makes it valuable is what the firms are doing with it, which is combining it with everyone else's data. But the problems I identify with tech firms are not problems of economics, they're problems of politics. That is to say, tech firms which can influence the democratic process, that can exert power over us, that can determine the extent of our freedom, and that decide questions of social justice. And it isn't clear to me that an antitrust regime that is designed to identify and tackle economic abuses is actually the best system yet, it was properly engineered, to tackle the political problems which I raised. Right, yeah. Now, you just mentioned uh, social justice, and I, and I know well, we don't have a, have a lot of time to get into that, but when you talk about uh, uh, economic justice in particular in the digital life world, you use the phrase uh, the wealth cyclone, and I, I really like that. And, and maybe you could explain a little bit about what that wealth cyclone is. Yes, it's a slightly cartoonish picture of where we might be heading, uh -huh. but I think it's an important one. Thomas Pickett, the, the, number of con, the number of trends going on just now. One is that owning capital, owning stuff and getting returns on it is a more um, consistent generator of income than working is. So those who own tend to make more money over time than those who work for a living. That's pattern number one. Pattern number two, increasingly there's going to be less and less work and more and more benefit from owning the technologies that replace the human work which is going to sort of supercharge the effect of the first trend. So those who own the most valuable tech that displaces human work will become richer, while the rest of us accustomed to working for a living will become um, financially less well off. Then there is the network effect issue, which is that once a tech firm or the owners of particular valuable capital become very successful and prominent, the effects we described earlier kick in, which is it's very hard to dislodge them. And so the big companies get bigger and they absorb smaller companies and it, and it becomes almost impossible to challenge for supremacy in certain areas. And then finally, unlike the great employers of the past, the Detroit car factory or the, 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 the heavy industry of the 20th century, these tech firms and these capital owners actually employ incredibly few people. So it's not like we can all go and get jobs at Google or Facebook, because in the grand scheme of things, they employ almost no one. And so you have 
greater and greater concentrations of wealth in a smaller and smaller group of capitalist owners, and this is all assuming all else is equal, what that could lead to is really great inequality in society. While the people who work for a living and who have been unable to acquire valuable capital themselves grow increasingly uh, far from the fountain of society's wealth and they find it harder to get by, while a very small group of owners gets extremely rich indeed. Yeah, and, and that has some huge and, and potentially very troubling implications for uh, political and societal stability, for sure. Of course. Now, and oh, yeah. carry on. Uh, I, there was one, and I know we're just about out of time, but there, there was a, one final question I wanted to ask you. Uh, uh, at the close of the book, or very close to the close of the book, you write, the digital life world will demand more of, more of us all. Vigilance, prudence, curiosity, persistence, assertiveness, and public spiritedness. Without them, the digital life world will slip into darkness. Uh, now, I read that and I thought, wow, that's, that's, that's asking an awful lot of us. And I don't know how optimistic I am. And so I wanted to ask you to close. How optimistic are you that we can meet these, these demands that, that you believe the digital life world is imposing on us? Well, I believe we can. I believe we can. I think with my lawyer hat on, it would be foolish for me to try and predict our percentage of success because I don't even really think we're on the pitch of play yet. I mean, to my mind, we barely started trying to tackle these problems. And I think we need to have politicians who know about and understand tech much better. We certainly need to have tech people who understand the moral and social implications of their work. And you and I, ordinary citizens, you know, in, in the next 10 years, we need to start treating technology with the same civic skepticism. We've always treated great concentrations of power and stop looking at it just as consumers. And it, it is a generational challenge that is as wide as society as it is deep. And I, I wouldn't be inherently pessimistic. I, I do in the book set out the challenges because I think we need to look at them with a calm gaze and recognize how steep they are. I do think humanity is up to it. At the same time, I think, you know, there's every chance we could fail. And uh, what I do know is that we'll certainly fail if we carry on as we're currently going, which is basically pretending there isn't a problem. Well, on that mostly optimistic note, we'll close. Uh, Jamie Suskin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.